Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. I'm reading from Romans, chapter 14, 1 through 10. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us die. Sorry, none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hi, guys. My name is Fabs. I work here on staff at The Vine. I'm really happy to be with you guys. We've been going through a series, if you're new here, on our distinctives. And those are like the six things that are our personality, our culture here at The Vine that you can expect to find. These are our six distinctives. Perfect. So far, we've covered Jesus-centered and biblically rooted. Um, And today, we're going to talk about our third way distinctive. Um, That is, each week, we're going to have a different person from our community kind of share about these distinctives and share why they're important to them. So I get to do that today with this third way one. Our third way distinctive, it stems from our Jesus-centered and biblically rooted distinctives. As a community, we center around Jesus. We look to how he lived his life and the scriptures that we encounter. We, we read him, read through them through the lens of Jesus as a person. And so what we know about Jesus' life, we know from the scriptures. And our third way distinctive comes from what we see about Jesus' life in the Bible. Okay, so... We see throughout Jesus' life this weird pattern where people will approach him with different issues, hot issues of the day, and they'll kind of say, hey, here's one option, side A, and here's the other option, side B. Where's your position? They line out their positions like this, and they ask Jesus to pick a side. This happens over and over and over again. In Jesus' day, the big issues among the religious community were things like Roman occupation, how we're God's chosen people supposed to respond to Roman occupation? Were they supposed to collaborate with the government or resist, right? Another hot topic, big issue that they wanted to take position on was how you interpret the Mosaic law. So in the Old Testament, God gave the law to his people through Moses. And now the religious people at the time were trying to figure out, we were trying to follow God. Are we supposed to still keep this law? And, And the people of God at that time were dividing over this. They were forming different groups. And so throughout the Gospels, you see these people come to Jesus and they're asking him questions. And they're not necessarily asking those questions because they want to learn. They're asking because they're trying to get Jesus to pick a side. Where do you stand on this? 
when we see the woman caught in adultery brought before Jesus, it's so that the Pharisees can find out how he interprets the Mosaic law. Do you think we're still supposed to stone women for adultery? That, that's the question they're asking him, right? They're trying to get him to pick a side. And you see in Jesus over and over and over again this really weird thing he does where he finds a third way. His options are A or B. And he chooses neither, right? He responds by asking a question sometimes or he responds with telling a story sometimes. It feels like they're having one conversation about positions and Jesus right in the middle of the conversation just changes the channel. He starts talking about something totally different. And that's kind of what we see today in the scripture that Lisa just read for us as well. It can sound weird, right? There's a lot of talk about food and days. But essentially, if you fast forward in your Bible from Jesus and the Gospels, they're still having the same conversation in the church that follows Jesus. The church is having a, a conversation, a question about how do we interpret the law in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God gave the law, he marked certain days to be set aside in a specific way, and he marked certain food as unclean. And the church is following, they're like, we're following Jesus now. Are we supposed to still be doing the things that that God said in the Old Testament? We don't know what to do, and they're dividing over it. And Paul steps in to bring unity. He steps in to bring them together. We're one church, we're gonna have one mind, But what's interesting about this conversation is that unity is not around positional alignment. When Paul steps in, he doesn't correct them and say the church should unite under this position or the church should unite under this position. Instead, like Jesus, it's it's like he's having a whole different conversation. They're asking him what the right thing to do is with, with honoring the law in the Old Testament, and he starts having a different conversation about a different issue. And let's look at the text and see if we can figure out what I think that conversation is. So in verse three and four, We've got the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? And then again, verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? Again, verse 13, therefore, in conclusion, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And in case you didn't get it, one more time, verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The Roman church is like, Paul, what's the right position that we should have on food and days and how we respond and how we interpret the law? And Paul's like, we should treat each other with love and kindness. They feel like totally different conversations, right? It's like he's having a different conversation. They're having this conversation around position. They want to find out what the right position is. And Paul is having a conversation about posture, about how we treat each other in the family of God. And he is calling them to unity. He is telling them to stop dividing. But the unity he's calling them to is not around one position. It's around one posture, right? He says this at the end of this section. He goes on and on about it for a little while. And then in the next chapter of Romans, he wraps it up with this. He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He's calling for unity. He's calling for a sameness. But that sameness is not a sameness of position. It's a sameness of posture, right? May God give you the same attitude of mind toward each other. May you unify as a church with how you treat each other, how you engage with each other, not necessarily being on the same place positionally, right? And when we look back at Jesus, we see the same pattern. Like he engages 
with all different kinds of issues of the day, but, but he very rarely clarifies his, his position on these hot-button issues. And in fact, when he forms his group of disciples, he gets to pick who hangs out with him, right? He picks those guys. He chooses one guy who's aligned with like resisting the government to the max, and he picks one guy who's a tax collector. And not one time in the Gospels do we see him sit down his disciples and clarify who's right. We gotta get it on the same page, guys. He doesn't do it once that we're told about, right? He doesn't seem to take a strong stance on these very important to the church at that time issues, but that doesn't mean we never see him take any stance. He does take a stance a lot of times, right? We see him get angry. We see him, dare I say, become intolerant. And when he does that, it's because he encounters postures of judgment or exclusion or shaming or abuse of power, right? This judgmental, distancing, exclusive, closed-minded things, these are the things that Jesus seems to be pretty clear how he feels about them, right? He isn't always clear where he stands on positions, but he's absolutely clear about how we treat each other. In fact, if I, I think if I ask you guys in here to think of one verse or two verses that Jesus, uh, that come to mind when you think about Jesus, even if you'd never read the Gospels, I bet most people associate Jesus with loving one another, right? Because that's what he's clear about. He isn't clear about where he stands on Roman occupation, and he isn't clear where he stands on interpreting the Mosaic Law. Our posture toward one another seems to be his priority to communicate. It seems to be the thing he keeps saying over and over again, and he seems to prioritize it above clarifying his position on these specific issues, right? And that's where our third way posture stance comes from that we as a church are gonna find our unity, this is our distinctive, we're gonna find our unity not in our specific positional alignment, but in posture. We're gonna unify around being compassionate, empathetic, inclusive, curious. That's our posture that we're gonna unite around. When we get together as a group, as a church, we align around something, it's not gonna be a specific theological position. We're gonna make space for multiple positions as we unify around how we treat each other, right? This is what it says on our website. In the middle of the fragmented us versus them culture, we seek to create space to wrestle with the issues of the day while embracing those who disagree. We desire to provide a refuge of inclusion and unity that is rooted in our choice to value empathy and compassion over certainty and absolute agreement. And that's because that's what we see Jesus do. That's how we think Jesus lived his life. Our group, as a group, we're gonna align around how we treat each other, not what we believe on a specific topic, right? Every group that has ever existed, a group is, by definition, people who align around something. There's something they put in the middle of them that they all agree on together, and you know if you belong in this group by whether you share that alignment, right? When you start a nonprofit or a group, you get to make up whatever you want that you're gonna align around. You can have anything that you're like, this is important to this group. And no matter what's on that paper, it's not necessarily intended to be exclusionary, but it is by nature because it lets people know if this group is for them. Do they share this category? Do they belong here? That's what a group does. When you unite around something, it lets everybody on the outside know, this is how you know if this group is for you. This is how you know if you belong. Every group does that. And the problem is we at the Vine aren't forming our own group. We're forming a church, right? When, when Mark sat down seven years ago and he decided to, to file his paperwork and start a nonprofit, 501c3, he had the right to put anything he wanted on it to align around. But when he added the word church to the title of the organization, 
that flagged that we are not forming our own group. We are raising our hand and saying we align with a group that was formed a long, long time ago, not by Mark, but by Jesus. That's what it means to be a part of the church, that you're raising your hand and you're saying, I'm not forming a new group. I don't get to decide what goes on the paperwork, what we align around. I'm going to actually say I'm, I'm aligning with this group that was already formed by someone a long, long time ago. And, and it's important to me that we understand this because that word church, it has a lot of power. It has a lot of weight. When I form a group, form a nonprofit, and I tell you, here are all the things that we unite around, and you from the outside look at it, you're like, I don't belong in that group, or I do belong in that group, got it. When I use the word church, I'm, whether I intentionally mean to or not, I'm communicating, this is what it means to belong in the family of God. And unfortunately, someone can internalize or interpret that, not as I don't belong in that specific 501c3 that's one expression of the church in one moment of time, with one position, right? What they can end up feeling is I don't belong in the family of God. Because we used that word church and it means something. It means we give up our right to determine what we're gonna align around. Jesus already said it for us and we have to look to him and learn from him and follow his vision. So to me, the third way is important because of what I believe about his vision for the church. What is the church? What is it supposed to look like? How are you supposed to identify it? What is supposed to happen inside of it? What is it supposed to feel like in the rest of the world? These questions are important to me. And that's what we're gonna talk about with the rest of our time. I was trying to think of like a, a metaphor for this, which for some of you this is helpful, for some of you it's just distracting, so tune out if it's too distracting. But when you think about the sun, right, the sun is a very complicated thing, S-U-N, complicated thing. Uh, and there's multiple ways you could categorize it or you could understand it, right? The first way is what you see in the sky, like what my niece draws on a piece of paper. She drew this, I would know, that's the sun, right? It's what I see when I look at it. But the sun is also what is happening if I was on the sun, a bunch of explosions, right? That's what the sun is. You can go to the next one. What is happening inside it, what, what's producing what we see, but if you could actually go inside the sun, you'd see millions of explosions. That's also true about what the sun is. And the third way we understand the sun, right, is we feel it, the light coming in through these windows, the warmth that is oppressive and trying to destroy us all that we feel outside, right? All these things are part of the sun, and it's the same with the church, Okay, we've got what we see when we look at it. Like when I draw the church on a piece of paper, what is the marker? How would you know it's a church? Jesus gets to decide that. And what happens inside the church? What are the explosions going on inside the church? Jesus gets to decide that. And what is felt and experienced in the world? What, what's the light and the warmth that the world gets from the church? Jesus gets to decide that. And to me, the third way is important because of how I would answer those questions. So let's start with the first one. What is the church supposed to look like? When we raise our hands and we say we're a church, we're saying we're aligning with a group long before us. So what's the thing that marks a church as a church according to Jesus, right? If I draw a sun on a piece of paper, you know it's the sun. How? There's identifying markers. The same is true about the church. Jesus designed identifying markers. In the last conversation he has with his disciples on the night he's betrayed, Jesus says this. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says in verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, by this, everyone will know that you are disciples. Not if you have a certain theological position, not if you know how to rightly interpret the Old Testament law, 
if you love one another, the marker, the identifying marker on the church of Jesus, the church that he started, following Jesus was going to be a posture, not a position, right? And the same thing, we see Paul say the same thing a few chapters later in the church in Galatia. Again, they're dividing over these same issues. This time it's circumcision or uncircumcision, which is ultimately the same question. How do we interpret the Old Testament law? And he says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself, becoming visible through love. I love that so much. I love it because it's like, in my mind, it's like you have this faith inside of you and then you're gonna try to express it through love. But this verse says that faith itself, like without me having to do the work, faith itself expresses itself through love. Like when you line up the church and the people of the church were like this iceberg and underneath is this faith and the part you see on top is love. That's how faith expresses itself, which is so wild to me because that's not a logical connection. Like my faith seems like it is expressing itself through my words right now. (laughs) That's how I feel. Faith is expressing itself through a sermon. Faith expresses itself through a confession of faith, through a doctrinal position. That's how I express, that's how I communicate my faith. This verse is saying that that's not how faith expresses itself, that, that true faith shows up in the world, the part that you get to see is love, right? To me, if Jesus wanted the church to be built upon specific doctrinal positions, then I think he was really bad at his job. Like, if that was the goal, I think he totally failed because we're all still pretty unclear about what the right position is to have on a lot of different things. I think if that was God's goal from the beginning, then when he put the fullness of himself inside a man named Jesus and he said, this man shows you the fullness of who I am, then he failed to show us where we're supposed to stand on all these positions. He messed it up. Like Jesus should have left us with a systematic theology book or a textbook Right, not a Bible that's filled with stories that are open to interpretation, that are historical accounts of things that happened. He should have been really clear, but instead he left us with what? His spirit. He left us with his spirit, right? And and when the spirit is at work in the people of God, in the church of God, it bears fruit. And what is that fruit? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. The, the fruit of the Spirit is not theology. It's not knowledge. It's not information. It's a posture. It's a way of approaching one another. We form around posture, not position, because we think the mark, the identifying factor that lets you know when you look at something that it's not just a group of people, a 501c3, it's a church. The mark is not where we stand on Roman occupation or taxes or religious holidays or the correct way to interpret the law or the correct way to interpret the Bible. None of those things marks us as followers of Jesus. It's our posture. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's our posture toward one another, not our position that sets us apart, okay? That's what you see when you look at the church. You see the posture of love, kindness, compassion, mercy. And what about when you go inside? What's inside? What's underneath that, right? It was faith expressing itself through love. So underneath that love, when you look at the church, you see this hopefully beautiful love fest, Underneath of that, if we could go inside, there's something happening. That's an expression of something happening. What is happening? Faith is happening. 
That's what's happening inside the church. I think sometimes people think our third way stance means that we don't care about what people believe, that we don't care what you think about the Bible or your position on X, Y, Z, right? And that's because in our culture, we're given two options. There's two options. Option A is your position matters. And if that's true, then your positional alignment means that the the church would be unloving if they did not define it for you. The church has to hold you accountable to a certain position. If your position matters, if it's an essential part of following Jesus, then the church of God should be a place where you can expect someone to tell you the right position and help you align with it. That makes sense to me. And and maybe the posture doesn't look like love, but surely that is love if they're trying to get you aligned with a position, if that positional alignment is what matters. That's one option. Option B that we're given is your position doesn't matter. Your position doesn't matter. So the church is free to love you, to have this nice idea. I have a posture to welcome everybody, to create a space of absolute belonging regardless of position because your positional alignment doesn't matter. But I know this is going to be a real curveball. I think there's a third way. (laughs) I think there's a third way, and that third way is that what you believe matters. It's, It's different. It's distinct than positional alignment. What you believe matters, what what is inside out. Positional alignment means there's a right and wrong position, and the goal is to align with the right position, right? Faith, what you believe is different from that. It's inside out, not outside in. And, and, And here's why I think that's true. Paul says it in this passage, right? Paul, on this conversation around food and days and all of that stuff, Paul has a fixed position. He's not taking a third way because he doesn't know what he thinks. The issue's too complicated. No one can know for sure. There's so many different positions. He says in verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He's stating his position on the food issue. I am convinced. How sure are you, Paul? Oh, I'm fully persuaded. Oh, just in yourself, your own opinion? No, no, in the Lord Jesus, I'm sure of my position. If we know anything about Paul, we know that part of the reason he's sure of his position on this is because he had a supernatural revelation from God. He has a position. He's sure of his position. He's convinced of it. But instead of trying to get everyone to align with him positionally, he says that what matters is not that positional alignment. It's what you believe, that faith is you walking, you being held accountable to walking in line with what you believe not what Paul believes, right? He says this, verse five, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike, and each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. So Paul's position, you can eat anything. If you come along and you eat anything and that's not what you believe, now you're sinning even though I just said I'm fully convinced of it in the Lord because faith is not the same as positional alignment, right? Faith is not necessarily positional sameness. Paul is making space here for the possibility that we could love God, love the Bible, and have different convictions, different positions, and that what matters is not your positional alignment. It's that you know what you believe, right? What matters to the church in Rome is not what Paul thinks, about eating. That's not what they're gonna be held accountable to. What matters is what they believe about it. That's what they're gonna be held accountable to. And they're not gonna be held accountable to Paul. They're gonna be held accountable to God, right? That's 
the other distinction that comes in this passage, right? When positional alignment is what matters, the church's job is to help tell you the right position and get you on board with it. When faith is what matters, it's inside out. It's formed inside out. No one can tell you it. God and you have to figure it out together in the dark, in the wrestling. That's what faith is. That's where faith is born, through God, for God, right? And I know this, I know this sounds super Western and individualistic. As I was writing this, I was like, oh, how convenient. It's like, oh, it's between you and God, and there's a position that's true, but you can have your own version, right? It sounds like I get it, but it's what he says in the Bible, right? He says it right here. You, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master servant stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. He's saying, don't judge other people. They don't work for you. They're not accountable to you. They're accountable to God, and God's accountable for helping them know what to believe, and he says it again. A couple of verses later, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For, because, reason you shouldn't do that, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Fast forward to verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And in case it wasn't clear, really spells it out in verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. He's not saying don't talk about your position. He's saying your position, if it's faith, you've got to be fully convinced of it between you and God, and you've got to walk in line with it. That means you guys are off the hook for what I believe, right? You don't have to panic if you disagree with something I say today. You don't have to panic for me because you're not responsible. You're not going to give an account for what I believe, okay? And you don't have to panic about it for you because you are not accountable for what I believe. You don't have to walk in line with what Fabs thinks. You have to walk in line with what you believe, what you and God have worked out. I'm responsible to God for what I believe, and God is responsible for guiding me in what I believe. It's his job to make me able to stand, right? What matters for your life is not what this church thinks the position is on XYZ issue. What matters for your life is what you believe the, issue, the position is on XYZ issue and, and how you walk in line with that, right? That's what faith is. And that doesn't mean that the church is, like, not a part of it. Right, in this one version, option A, we had your position. Your position matters, and so the church's job is to find the right position and hold you accountable to it, right? Now we're saying your faith matters, what you believe matters. And the church is still a part of this, even though it's worked out with you and God. It's like you and God in this divine unity where the two of you, like no longer do you need another person to teach you, but now God has put a spirit within you. That's the new covenant, and now each of you will know God this amazing, miraculous thing that's happening. And the church is not like somewhere random, not a part of it. The church is right around you. And their love and their support and their posture towards you, your absolute sense of belonging, is what enables you to go deeper in with God. It is terrifying to wrestle with God about positions that affect your life. To figure out what you believe is scary work, and the church is there lowering you deeper in that pit with ropes that support you, scaffolding that supports you with love and absolute belonging no matter where you land. That's the gift of the church, right? And contrary to a third-way church being a place where your position doesn't matter, your faith doesn't matter, to me, a third-way church is a place where you can actually finally figure out what you believe. Because learned a little something about our brains, but when our belonging is dependent on believing, when, when your right to belong in this space depends on you agreeing with what I say here on a Sunday, if you love this space, 
If you're connected, if this is your community, then your brain is going to do whatever it takes to help you belong. It's going to align with me positionally without even asking your permission. It's going to not want to go in the dark and wrestle with the doubts and the fears because it will cost you too much. If you go down in that deep cave and you come out and you land on a different position, it's going to cost you belonging. And for your brain, that's a big deal. It doesn't want to do that. So it's going to put up guardrails around you, fear, anxiety, sensations like shame that help keep you in line. It's going to help you align with me positionally. For that Roman church, it's going to try to get you online with what Paul says, because what Paul says is right. And in doing that, you miss out, you lose this divine, miraculous, beautiful right that we have to be fully convinced in our own mind. This, the saddest part about that for me is that the church was given to you as this gift, this this family that you belong in absolutely no matter what because your belonging was purchased for you by Jesus thousands of years ago. And your belonging doesn't depend on your behavior or your thoughts or your emotions. It depends on Jesus. And so now you have this place, the thing that some of us have wanted our entire lives, a family that will never abandon you, that will never reject you, that offers you this secure base of attachment so that you are finally able, finally free to discover God, to explore God, to figure out what you and God believe. That's the gift of the church, this family of God. To me, there's something so dignifying in this position that I trust you with God. And I trust God with you. Like, I, I see Gabe, and Gabe and God are okay. They'll figure it out. And I'm here as the church to help hold Gabe accountable to what he says he wants to live in line with, to help him follow Jesus in the way that Jesus is leading him. Right? That's the gift of the church. That's why posture over position matters to me. And thirdly, we talked about the church. You know, we've got what we see. We've got the markers of it. We've got, got what's happening inside, which is this faith you unfolding it with God as the church supports and scaffold, provides scaffolding of love to help that happen. And then you've got what spills out of the church, right? The light and the warmth that the sun gives off that you can feel in every corner of Texas for sure, right? The group that we joined, when we raised our hand and said we're a church, the group that we joined that Jesus formed, Jesus had an intention for how it would feel, what that light and warmth would feel like in the world. Toward the end of our passage today, Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Right? This is the main point of this passage, and the message, it says it this way. You're certainly not going to p- permit an argument over what is served or not served at supper to wreck God's work among you, are you? There's all kinds of things that matter, all kinds of things. But sometimes when we argue about them, when we divide over them, then we distort the things that matter most. We get in the way of that warmth and light that's spilling out from from God's church to the world, right? Our third way is a refusal to prioritize conversations that were not prioritized by Jesus. It's a refusal to center the church around issues that were not clear clearly communicated by Jesus, right? Not because they don't matter. We think they matter, but because when we make conversation about them, when we divide over them, we speak into them a priority. We communicate they're a priority for God because we're using that word church. And when we do that, we accidentally distort the experience of the church, the main point of the church, right? The SBC is a group, a denomination of 
uh, churches that gathered together. They just met this past week. They've had some controversy, but they met this past week, and they were talking about an issue that's really important to them because they recently removed some churches from the SBC for having female elders and pastors. And Rick Warren, his, his church, was one of the ones that was removed for this. He no longer works there, but he went to the SBC to kind of advocate for this position. And he highlighted that, that the problem is when the SBC kicks churches out for female pastors but doesn't kick them out for racial sin or sexual sin, that division communicates a priority that he is confident they don't feel. That no one there is looking at those things and being like, this matters more to God than this. They're just dividing over this issue because it's the hot topic, because it's the controversial thing, and they feel, they feel burdened to take a position on it so they can help the church be in positional alignment. But by doing that, by dividing, they are communicating, whether they mean to or not, a priority, right? And the other topic on the SBC agenda this, this year was, was this reform of sexual abuse and how it's handled in the church. That's a big deal for the SBC. They've been trying to take steps to handle that differently. And there was some criticism because the conversation this week at the SBC got monopolized by this issue about female pastors and female elders. Bob Bender, who's a pastor, he said it this way, what does it say when we're slow on the take on sexual abuse of women but quick on the draw to disqualify them from non-lead pastor roles? What does it say? Whether we mean it to or not, it communicates to the world a priority. Division over doctrine communicates that whatever doctrine you're dividing over is a priority to God. That's what it communicates. Monopolizing conversation around a specific doctrine also communicates that doctrine is a priority to God. The things we divide over, the things we focus on in our conversations, they communicate priorities to the rest of the world whether we want them to or not. And what's crazy to me is that the, the, the doctrines we're dividing over, the issues we're talking about, we're not talking about them because they were a priority to Jesus. We're talking about them because they're a current cultural problem that we have to clarify, which I get it. Things are currently confusing. People feel the need to clarify, but we're spending all of our time, all of our energy, we're, we're making whole churches based on words that never even came out of Jesus' mouth, right? In our attempts to clearly communicate to the world where we stand on these positions, we've accidentally miscommunicated Jesus, Right? We've missed the primary conversation of the gospel that you're loved and welcome and wanted no matter how you failed. And when, we, when we cannibalize conversations with these specific positions, when we divide over them the warmth and the light that the world is supposed to feel from the church, it's getting blocked. They're confused. Right? I started going to the Vine right at the time this third way position was being fleshed out. It was during the pandemic. There was no church. I joined a virtual small group online, and Mark, our pastor, was the leader of my group. And I remember noticing this third way thing right away because we'd open the Bible, and Mark would ask everybody kind of their thoughts, and then I would sit there waiting for Mark as the pastor to say the right answer. I was so disturbed and confused, maybe angry, I don't know, definitely uncomfortable, but I kept going, I kept going, and over time, I began to see that Mark genuinely wasn't trying to, like, trick people into getting on his position. He was trying to facilitate connection between them and God. He was honestly trusting, sending these people back in the room with God. They come out of the room, what's the right answer? He sends them back in. I'm right here when you need me, but you guys figure out what you think about this. So as the group progressed. I had, at that point in my life, was like, I'm never going to join another church. I'm definitely never going to work at a church again. Never going to happen. Uh, as the group progressed, I just kind of 
fell in love with this third way idea. I didn't know what it was then. I went to coffee with Mark. It was the first time we'd ever met in person. It was before the church was happening again. It was before I'd ever even been to the Vine in person. And we sat there and talked about church membership, what it would mean if I became a part of the covenant community at the Vine. And he said, well, I should tell you, this week we're rolling out a stance called the third way stance, and it's kind of controversial, and we're going to lose some people over it. So I don't want you to join the church today. Come to church on Sunday and find out about this, this posture that we have. So he explained it to me. And he walked me through the vision of the third way. And for me, I remember sitting at that coffee table, radio coffee, and something clicked into place for me. See, in my younger days, I worked for a church, worked for a church for a long time. Me and my friends worked there, and so we had a ton of conversations about theological positions, about different kinds of things. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful to talk about our position on all these different things. Because in that room, in those four walls, we knew that the gospel was the priority. Like, that was clear. So we could move on. We could move on to those next topics because we understood that God loved us. And in those four walls, it didn't seem confusing to me to articulate and figure out where we all stood on positions and align and make it really clear to the rest of the world where we aligned. That didn't feel confusing. But at some point, I left that job and I went back into a job where I worked with people who don't work at a church 24-7. And I realized, oh, out here it's not clear at all. Out here, people are actually pretty clear about what you think about their sexual lifestyle. What they're not clear about is whether or not you think they're valuable and worthy and have dignity and worth. That's what's not getting communicated out here. In an attempt to clarify our position on certain issues, it feels like the church has accidentally miscommunicated the personality of God, right? And I remember in my job a couple of years back, maybe five or so years ago, I worked for digital influencers, and one of my clients, we ended up going to New York. She wanted to do um, some service work with a community in the, the north part of Manhattan that's a community of gang queer children who've become homeless, and now they live in this center. So we're there with them all day, and we're sitting around, and we're hearing all these stories. One by one, these teenagers, 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds, are telling us about their experiences and why they're homeless, and I think only one out of every person we met with that day did not come from a Christian household. Every single other person in that room was there because their family felt it was so important to communicate where they stood on the position of sexuality that they'd asked their child to leave their house. I sat in that room and I was like, we, something is epically getting miscommunicated here. This is not what the church feels like. This is not what we are to be known for, right? It's so, so broken, so, so distorted. So when I sat at that picnic table with Mark and he described the third way to me, it made sense and it wasn't because my positions had necessarily shifted. It was because my priorities had changed. The gospel, communicating the gospel, communicating the love and the warmth and the light of Jesus is my priority I don't want to be in a place where I'm identified or unified by my position on an issue that wasn't even a priority for Jesus. I want to be identified by my posture that feels that it's an experience of Jesus that is like the gospel, right? Whether we mean it to or not, the church's obsession with position is coming at the expense of the experience of love. I know it feels like we should be able to do both, communicates our position and have people experience love. It's not happening. That is not what's happening. And to me, 
Sitting at that table, I knew for sure that if communicating my position on a theological doctrine was going to make the gospel less clear, then I just wanted to go back to the gospel. I don't need to talk about anything for me that confuses the gospel. I don't need to talk about anything, have any conversation in a way that somehow confuses the idea that you are loved and valuable and wanted and welcome and there's nothing, anyone who's hungry, anyone who's thirsty, come here for food and there's no cost, there's no charge, no specific doctrine or mantra you have to say at the door to get food from Jesus. That's not how it works. Right, the third way that Mark rolled out that weekend, it wasn't a shifting of position, not the vine used to be traditional and now we're affirming. It was a prioritization of the experience of the gospel. We are going to welcome you like Jesus. That's what we're going to do here, right? A change in priorities, a change of the conversation. Our third way stance is that we want to create a space here where the welcoming love of God is prioritized over specific theological issues, not because we don't care about what you believe, but because we feel like that gives you space to figure out what you believe, and whatever you figure out with God in the dark when you come out of that cave, we're going to be here ready to love you, and you are welcome and wanted, and you belong. And I think it's such a beautiful idea. I do want to say one last thing. Mark calls the third way our, our sacred experiment. Our sacred experiment, I love that. It is an experiment. It is a beautiful idea. We're not the first church or only church to try something like this, but it is an experiment because it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to sit in a room with people who don't align with you positionally. It's not our brain's favorite thing to do. And I was thinking as I was preparing this sermon that I wanted to say one last thing, which is I know I'm a person who obviously has positions. I'm passionate about them, right? This Sermon is one of my positions, right? And I realized as I was writing it, and I know as I'm saying it, that it can sound like I think the only way to be a good church is if this is your, where your stance is, the third way. And I want to say that I don't think that, that I think that forming a group, even a church, around doctrinal positional alignment is sometimes a thing that people need. Sometimes there are moments in our lives where we have been bruised, wounded in such a way that we need to stand toe-to-toe with people who agree with us and align with us because it's too painful to hear someone else's position that feels like integral to your identity and belonging. Sometimes we want to be a part of a community that aligns with us positionally. I hope not forever, but sometimes we need it for a little time to help us recover from things we've been through, to help us heal. I know for me, there's, there's dents, there's dips in my story that mean it's really hard for me to feel belonging at a church that has specific theological positions. And I do have a hard time with it, right? I have a hard time making space for everyone's positions on those things. So I want to say that I, I get it. I think there's no judgment for anyone here who needs positional alignment, Right? because of specific things that have happened to you in your story. And I want to say that for those of you who are engaging with us in this sacred experiment of the third way, I think you're so brave and wonderful, and it's amazing. I am so impressed by the way some people in this room are able to hold space for people to disagree on something that feels integral to their identity. I think it's beautiful. I think it's the church. I think that's the church. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.